message, it is going to be a little longer than the other messages that we've had with the book of Luke. Most of the messages in Luke, they have been about 20 to 40 minutes long. Um, I'm not exactly sure how long today's message would be, but I'm aiming for it to be done by three, and it might be a few minutes less or a few minutes more. I respect your time, um, but since you're here, put on your seatbelt, buckle up, and get ready for the ride. Um, so, um, the passage that we will look at today takes place 2,000 years ago during the ministry of Jesus while he was in Galilee. Galilee and Judah, they were both under Roman occupation, and thus these regions were going through tumultuous time politically, economically, and socially. Economically, under Herod, the governor of the area, and his successors, there were good things and there were also bad things. Urbanization was taking place, but there was a great divide between the upper class and the lower class, especially in the rural areas. There was an increase in taxation over the rural peasantry. Landlords would raise the rent on the peasants, and the peasants would have to take more loans. The majority of the population, the peasantry, were struggling to keep their land while dealing with the increase of debt, tax, and rent. Many of them became landless poor and reduced to scraping a living together through wage labor or whatever means they had available. The value of land increased. This was good for the rich, but hard and made it hard for any peasant who wanted to buy, purchase, buy land. Money and wealth went up to the Herodian aristocracy. But I want to note this, that not every peasant lived in desperate poverty. According to some archaeology, the average Galilean peasant maintained a decent living standard, often through supplementing their farming with income and from industry and trade. But many people felt that they had been left out of the economic growth that the elite, the top, were having. All who were prospering, they felt, were those who were at the very top. This was the attitude in the rural village life and the village communities. This was the historical context during Jesus' life. We have seen the, God, the Son of God arrive. His name is Jesus and the angels and, and God recognize Jesus' identity as the Son of God. And after defeating the devil, Jesus declared that he has arrived to bring salvation. Jesus demonstrated that he has brought salvation from the ruling class and the earthly powers, from Satan and wicked spirits, from sickness and death. All in all, Jesus brought salvation from sin, from the poison of the serpent of Genesis 3. Jesus believed that he had brought a new era, ushered in a new period, a period of salvation, of liberation. And this era is part of God's plan. This is what God had said since the beginning. Jesus has proclaimed salvation, release, and liber liberation that has taken place through him. 
Jesus has brought the full kingdom of God with the eternal life, resurrection, and the possession of the earth by the righteous. Je- <coughs> Excuse me. Jesus has brought the kingdom, but it is not fully here. <coughs> he has established the kingdom already. He has established it, but it's not yet completed. <coughs> the kingdom of God that Jesus brought supports the idea that God is in control of history. The kingdom of God, as many of us may already know, involves God's people being saved from that which torments them, such as violence, danger, oppression, evil, and sin. The promises of God are, are fulfilled in the kingdom that Jesus has established. As Jesus proclaims, he declared that he is Israel's Messiah, He is the king of God's people. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises made to Israel. Jesus rules as the son of man. He is the human one who rules on God's behalf. But Jesus is a different type of king. He is a king who arrived on this earth in a lowly place. Luke focused on the teachings of Jesus. He emphasized on what Jesus says in regards to justice, in regards to raising up the poor and the powerless. Luke also emphasized the conflict between the Pharisees and Jesus. Jesus had rejected their view of the world. The Pharisees and the scribes' worldview was widespread and had become the norm. The Jews were expected to live according to the patterns that the Pharisees had taught. They were not supposed to eat with sinners, and they were supposed to fast religiously. People who ate with sinners, people who didn't observe the Sabbath as they suggested, were defined as outsiders, people of low regard in society. Jesus counteracted the negative teachings and attitudes the Pharisees possessed. And today, we will see why. Jesus acted differently. He articulated his beliefs and what his followers should believe and follow. Today we will read Jesus' manifesto according to Luke. We will read what scholars have called the Sermon on the Plain. The Sermon on the Plain, you could say, is Jesus' manifesto. According to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, manifesto is defined as written statement as a written statement declaring publicly the intentions, motives, or views of its issuer. In the Sermon of the Plain, we see what Jesus intended for his followers, what they should do, and we also see the heart of Jesus. Jesus' manifesto tells us about a new kind of living, and a change to our social relationships. We see what the kingdom of God, what living in this kingdom looked like for Jesus. If you want to show who Jesus is to anybody, show them this passage, or the alternative passage which we find in the Gospel of Matthew, which is what many know, know as the Sermon on the Mount. But for now... If you have your, your Bibles, open it up to Luke 6, 17 to 22. It's also on the bulletin on the insert there if you want to check it out there. And it'll be on the screen as well. Um, but Luke 6, 17 to 22. Let me get that ready within my Bible. 
So, it starts like this. He, Jesus, went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number, number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had, be, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Jesus had gone to a level place. Hence, scholars have referred to this sermon as the Sermon on the Plain. He had been on the mountain previously, and now he descended like Moses who had gone to Mount Sinai and descended with God's word with the Ten Commandments for God's kingdom. Jesus had a large crowd with him from all over the land, people from Judea and Jerusalem, the southern parts of the region, and people from the coast, from the west, came to hear him speak. Both Jews and non-Jews, Gentiles were, were present Jesus was a famous, famous rabbi, a popular teacher, despite the Pharisees and scribes rejecting his status. And Jesus was a famous healer. Jesus healed people from their diseases and expelled demons. Jesus had power, good power. And then this man, with power, began to teach. Jesus pronounces some things that are interesting. And that bring hope. Jesus is making the official proclamation of the way of life and the reign of God. Just like Moses did with Israel several thousand years before him. And he said, blessed are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed comes from a Greek word that means happy or fortunate. It's odd to see that the poor are fortunate. Let me be clear. This is not suggesting how to be happy. This is just stating, or this isn't suggesting that we need to be poor in order to be happy. This, this is just stating that Jesus is merely saying, this is all that he's saying, those who are poor are blessed, despite what the Pharisees had thought. In Luke's gospel, the poor were those who were marginalized in the larger world, whether on the basis of economic or other measures, according to Jesus, they are fortunate. They are happy, blessed, because theirs is the kingdom. The kingdom of God is excellent, as we have discovered through our series in the kingdom, yet it's not the ones who have the most power 
or finances who get the kingdom. Instead, Jesus picks those who seem to have the least amount of power. The poor will get the kingdom. Then he said that those who are hungry, they will be satisfied. Isn't that hopeful? There are so many people who are starving in this moment. But there is hope. According to Jesus, they will be satisfied. Something that is taking place right now, especially in these crazy times, is this. People are weeping because of death, because of the pandemic, because of the loss of a job, because of rejection or loss. People are weeping. But listen to this. Blessed are you who weep. How things look like right now, it's not always going to be like this. Look, there will be a day when you who weep will laugh. And I think as a community that works on bringing God's kingdom here on the earth, we should strive to bring what Jesus has said into reality. Let people taste the upside down kingdom. Let people taste the future, the day when the poor would be blessed, when the hungry would be satisfied. Let them taste the day when those who weep laugh. Let them experience a community where the poor are blessed, where the hungry are satisfied, and where the ones who mourn, who cry, laugh. This is what Jesus wanted and intended and believed would happen. Jesus' vision of the new world is eschatological, meaning that it deals with the end times. But in one sense, the end has already arrived. And Jesus' vision should help us understand the world in a different way. There is a plan. Jesus' vision should help us gain a perception of God's redemptive work. He will help those who are in need and who are mourning. Jesus' words are words of hope. These words that Jesus said brought hope to sinners, to the demonized, to the tax collectors, to women, and so on. This group of people were socially defined by the world's standards. They were marginalized. But Jesus proclaimed and demonstrated that this group of people will not only be accepted, but they will embrace, be embraced and restored in the kingdom that Jesus has brought, both in the present and in the future when the kingdom fully takes over. The poor hunger and weep now at this present moment. But they will not in the future. Even though this sounds great, even though this teacher sounds great, there will be people who don't like that you follow this hopeful teacher. People are not going to like, they're not going to like you that you follow Jesus. People who like how things are, who are living prosperously and are comfortable, might not like it. But yet, Jesus is bringing an upside-down kingdom 
And Jesus knew that people weren't going to like him. During his time, people had the mentality that the poor lacked righteousness and lacked worth. That's why God didn't bless them with wealth. But Jesus said another thing. Rather than seeing poverty as a reflection of bad character or as something that could be justified as acceptable, Jesus places God on the side of the poor. And Jesus faced backlash for it. And we face backlash for it. But yet, Jesus said, Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you, and reject your name as evil. You are blessed when you are persecuted because of God's name. Back in the day, Christianity was rejected for several reasons. Christianity meant to look at people as people, not as resources. Christianity meant that Jesus is king and that he has brought the kingdom. But people didn't like the type of king Jesus was. He wasn't powerful according to the world's standards and didn't hang out with the pious as the Pharisees wanted. Christianity also said that, there, that the only God that exists is the God of Jesus, the one true God. People found that to be intolerant. I think culturally today, we can see similarities between the, the suffering, the social pressure that the Christians face early on and the pressures that we face today. Christianity, at one point, was viewed culturally as something good here in the West. It was a good thing. If you were a good Christian, it meant that you were moral. Then the rise of pluralism argued that Christianity was all right. It was neutral, just like any other religion. But now Christianity is viewed as something regressive, something bad. We've all heard, oh, you're a Christian? And part of the reason that culturally Christianity is viewed as something regressive, as something that's going backwards, it's, it's not all because the world is just disliking us. I think part of the reason also comes because of the Christians of America and how they have contributed to the world seeing Christianity as regressive. And it might be because of their involvement in politics or cultural wars. Sometimes some Christians who might be more nationalistic than Christian some have even called this movement to be Christian nationalism. These people have represented Christ in such a negative way that the world sees these Christians who are picking the wrong fights, who forget about the basics of what it means to follow Christ. The world look at, looks at these Christians, at their actions, and see these Christians as going backwards, as regressive. These Christians are not being persecuted for the name of Christ. They are being persecuted because of their political views or extremism. But the worst thing of it all is that the culture lumps all Christians as being the same. That we are a monolith. Politically, culturally, and personally. That we're all the same. That's not the case, however. We all follow Christ. And we all are on our journey 
and we all try our best according to the unique personality God has given us and the culture he has put us in. Still, when we say that we are Christian, people may see us as people who are taking a step backwards. Not so much because of what we believe, but rather because of what other people have done in the name of Christ. But nonetheless, whenever you face persecution because you follow Christ, because you follow Jesus Christ in your life, in the area of your sexual life, and your attitude, in the area of your speech, of your voice, and your actions, you might even want to explain what you believe and why you believe it and why you act a certain way, but people just cut you off and say, oh, you're religious. Whenever you feel that people hate you, that people think what you believe is evil, that it's oppressive or regressive, when you are persecuted for the sake of Christ, know that you are blessed. Remind yourself, I am blessed. Jesus tells me I am blessed. And even though I don't feel it, people are rejecting me, I'm having less friends because I follow Jesus, remind yourselves what Jesus has declared. Even though my present circumstances seem horrible, God's favor is over me. Amen? Amen. Um, one other thing before we look at the next passage is that Jesus was talking to his disciples. Disciples are those who left everything to be with Jesus. Disciples were those like Levi, a tax collector, who left everything to be with Jesus. They responded to the call. Sometimes we think the call as being called to the ministry or to a particular job. While I do believe God does call us to those things, I think that they are more vocational and occupational than the call that we see within the Bible. Something, those things just seem like something we've been selected to do. But the biblical call, especially in the New Testament, the one Jesus makes is a call to be his disciples. Whenever we answer the call, this is the call that he makes to all of us here. We choose to follow him or to stay where we are at. Those who have decided to follow Jesus have left everything in response to his call. They are living in renunciation and want. They don't live by what they want. They, they are, to, in one sense, the poorest of the poor, the most tempted of the tempted, the hungriest of the hungry. Their treasures are not in this world. They only have Jesus. And with him, they have nothing in this world. Nothing at all. But yet, they have everything. Everything with God. Disciples have nothing in the world, but everything with God. Disciples also have a community. During Jesus' time, it was a small community. And here we are, thousands of years later, and we are part of that community, which is now a bigger community worldwide. To the disciples, Jesus looks at them and tells them, 
Blessed are you who are poor, who hunger, who weep, and who suffer persecution. Following Christ is not easy. You may be poor in the sense that you don't get attached to money. Financial gain is not your goal. You may weep because you have been rejected. But yet there's a paradox. Jesus' kingdom is upside down. The disciples who weep are blessed. The disciples were poor, tempted, and hungry. Yet they were blessed. They were blessed because they were called and because of the promise of God. The disciples were blessed because of Jesus' call, the one that they decided to follow. The world sees these disciples, see them suffer rejection and loss. But they are amazed to see how peaceful and happy they are through it all. The disciples don't shake off the suffering of persecution. They bear it. And they do it gladly because they know that they are blessed to be Jesus' disciples. But how are disciples supposed to live in the present world? What is our attitude when we face persecution? Do we get into arguments, get into these Facebook arguments or social media arguments? Do we engage in cultural wars or do we do something else? Hopefully you have your Bible open or if you have your insert, if we continue reading a few verses down, verse 27, it'll be on the screen as well. And it says this. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. This is uh, one of the more crazier statements that Jesus has said. But this is part of what makes Jesus, Jesus. He said and actually demonstrated what it looks like in the upcoming chapters in Luke. What it looks like to love beyond oneself. Jesus defines the new conditions of 
existence for his community. If you're going to be part of his community, this, this is what you do. Instead of following the pharisaical way of living, Jesus taught that his, that his community should be marked by this statement, which is the dominant theme of the Sermon on the Plain. He said, love your enemies. Jesus doesn't follow the conventional way of thinking. He redefines the world. And Jesus begins to indicate what the foundation should be. What our mentality should be. Namely, that we should love our enemies. And this command has led people to bring change. Loving enemies was fundamental to the philosophy of Martin Luther King Jr., And although this commandment has brought good to this world, there is no commandment of Jesus which has caused so much discussion and debate as this commandment has. The commandment to love our enemies. This love isn't theoretical or philosophical or abstract. No, this is an attitude that we should all have towards our enemies. Jesus commands us to love. It's like we, we have a choice to love, and it's because we do. Jesus says that we are to choose to love our enemies. Our enemies can be those who hate us because we follow Christ. Our enemies can be those who want to do us harm just because we are who we are. Our enemies can be those who do, who do things we don't like, that we don't appreciate. Our instinct... The normal instinct of the present sinful kingdom, the way of doing life, is to respond to our enemies with hate and anger. And we feel it inside of us to do that. We want to hate our enemies. It feels good to get revenge. We want to retaliate. But Jesus is counterculture. And he's not counterculture in the easy way. He's counterculture in the hardest way, in the most challenging way. He is counterculture by telling us instead of hating our enemies, we choose to love them. We choose not to hate back, but we choose to love. We choose to seek the highest good. For we, we, we choose to do it for our friends already, but as Christians, we, we choose to seek the highest good for those who insult us. And to injure us. We're supposed to choose love. Many people, many communities are known for what they are against. Like the Pharisees. But Jesus believed that his community should be known for their love. Their love for both friend and enemy. Then Jesus elaborates. Do good. Choose to do good towards those who hate you. That sounds crazy. We want to hate those who hate us. We want to do wrong to those who hate us. But Jesus didn't view relationships as transactional. Because we are blessed, Jesus believed that we had a bank from where we have grace and love stored up. Even though people pay us with hate, we can pay them with grace. Not because of what they have given us, but because of Jesus, of who he is and what he has done 
for us. Namely, that he has brought God's kingdom. Because in God's kingdom, the currency of grace is abundant. I can bless those who curse me. Those who speak to invisible powers to harm me. I can pray for them. Instead of hating these individuals, instead of cursing them, we pray for them. We pray for those who mistreat, mistreat us. And then Jesus gets very practical. What, what did he say? He, if someone slaps you on one cheek, what do you do? We get our hands ready and punch them back? No. Jesus said to turn the other cheek. <clears throat> this is not necessarily a call for pacifism. Although some Christians I admire are pacifists. This is more of a call to forget about honor. To hurt somebody, Jesus could have used the word for punch. But Jesus used the word slap, the word for slap. Back in the day, and even nowadays, the slap was disrespectful, especially a backhanded slap. And Jesus says, when you are dishonored through a slap, in this case, don't, don't let honor be more important than loving your enemies. Don't slap back. Don't dishonor them back. Instead, turn the other cheek. It's crazy. But Jesus calls us to this. It's clear that this is how God's kingdom comes to this earth. Jesus demonstrated this. He was dishonored and shamed. And it's hard for us to do this. But just because it's hard, it doesn't mean that we don't strive for this. We're on a journey following Christ and his teachings. And following him and his teachings means... To love our enemies more than we care about our honor. We are also to love people more than we love materialistic things. If someone takes your coat, give them your shirt. God blesses us with material things. And I'm not saying you can't have wealth or anything like that. But I am saying we shouldn't get so attached to things that we can't use them. To bless others. And I'm saying all of these things. And I, I just wonder. What if Christians were known for these things. For their love towards their enemies. Instead of being known for their Facebook battles. Or who most evangelicals voted for. I wonder what would happen if Christians were known to be generous people. Generous in grace. Love in response to hate. Give without remorse. I just wonder. We would still be persecuted, but at least we would be doing what we were supposed to be doing. Loving people. Loving our enemies. Loving those in need. Love expressed as doing good. We need to be active in our love. We can't be passive in our love. We need to be proactive in the face of opposition. We need to do good, bless people, and pray for them. We need to practice the triad Jesus presents here. Love, do good, and give without calculation, without expecting return, without any strings attached. And in the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus said the very famous golden rule. 
Do to others as you would have them do to you. Do you want people to hate you? Do you want people to dishonor you? Probably not, right? You want there to be love in this world. Then love. You want there to be grace in this world. Then show grace. Your enemies, you want your enemies to stop being your enemies. Then show them what a friend looks like. Gandhi concisely said, be the change you want to see in the world. We can teach about how we are supposed to be different. We can talk about it. About how we are supposed to love. How we are supposed to show grace. We can talk about how the early church did beautiful things in the name of Christ. The hospitality and love that they showed was incredible. But Jesus charges us to be the change. And it means that we don't pay back evil with evil. We, pay, we don't pay back evil with what we receive. Rather, we pay back evil with what we want to receive. We want to receive goodness. That means we have to pay with goodness. We pay back evil with goodness. We pay back hate with love. It's not easy. It's easier to go with the flow of things. It's easy to pay back evil with evil. I mean, that's what they gave us, so might as well give it back to them. But we are people who have not just received hate. We are a people who have received love from our Heavenly Father. We have been blessed by Him. We have been blessed by the community He has given us. So we have a reservoir of grace. We have a bank full of love. So instead of paying, paying back evil with evil, we can start making a difference. We can pay back evil with goodness. And maybe when we give love to those who hate us, they will start filling up their banks with love as well. And instead of hating, they will love. Elida and I are currently reading a book on marriage as we are preparing to get married. And it talks about how in the West we really just focus on marriage as if we, if we get married, it's just because it feels great. We have this great attraction, this great passion. But the author of the book, Tim Keller, said that this had le has led to the rise of divorce. People just have this lovey feeling in the bank. They only give love whenever they feel like it. And unfortunately, when time passes, if they only have this lovey feeling in the bank, they end up bankrupt with nothing to give in the future. Once you're maybe a year or two years in marriage, you don't have anything in the bank. You don't have any more love to give. And then you just end up getting mad at each other and you only give what you get. So you get tired of everything that your spouse does. You don't have the currency to maintain that lovey picture that you had of your partner if you just rely on feelings. Look, I am not saying that you shouldn't have passion in the bank. You should have passion. But I am saying that you need something more than just passion. You need something more stable. The power for marriage, the currency for love, 
It shouldn't come from our feelings or from ourselves, but it should come from the heavens, from something that is eternal. There's a story about a woman who was in her late 30s and was never married. She was shamed by her family because she was unmarried. She understood that it, she understood that it, but she fortunately through counseling she understood that a woman doesn't have to have a husband or children to have any worth. So she began doing her own thing. She pursued a, pursued a career and she began to feel better. But she discovered that she couldn't get over her resentment towards her longtime ex-boyfriend. Her ex had caused a lot of pain. And this time around, and uh, she decided to go to church where she heard the good news, the gospel. She heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the good news is not that we live a good life, give it to God, and then he saves us. Instead, as we saw with the tax collector lived by the good news of the Bible, is that Jesus, a perfect human being, comes to us and loves us and has called us to himself. And as we will see in Luke, Jesus lived a perfect life. He lived a life that we should have lived. We should have lived a life in perfect obedience to God, but we didn't. Jesus did. We didn't. And then Jesus died in our place in disobedience to God We should have died on that cross, but Jesus took our place. He took the cross, the punishment we deserved. So, when we believe, our sins are pardoned. The woman heard this news, and she believed, and she began to follow Christ and know her love, and know his love for her. And she began to say that males and careers didn't make her beautiful. But the love and work of Jesus makes her beautiful in the eyes of God. She began to accumulate this emotional wealth. The woman recognized that she was so loved by God that her bank of love was being filled. Because she had a sense of being loved so deeply, she was able to forgive her ex who had hurt her. When you get a hold for God's love for you, You can love those who have hurt you. As disciples of Jesus, we need to get a sense of God's love for you. And as we do, as we learn more, our bank gets filled with this wealth of love. And we should give this love to everyone, including our enemies. But maybe you don't want to follow this command that Jesus said. Well, Jesus really found this to be essential. He taught that loving one's enemy was the mark that made his followers different from the world. You could choose not to follow this command. You might even say that you follow Jesus and not love your enemies. But Jesus says that you're no different from the world. You can say you are a follower of Christ... But if you don't love people, or you're not trying to, you are not acting as a follower of Christ. Instead, you're acting just like the world. Be different, as Jesus was different. Tertullian, an early Christian writer, and he was also a lawyer, he said this um, in the next slide. 
It says, to love friends is the custom for all people. But to love enemies is customary only for Christians. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Then you will receive your heavenly reward. This is what holiness is. Sometimes we think it's about how we dress. Well, that is important. We see for Jesus, this is one of the main things, if not the main thing. Loving our enemies. This is how we're different from the world. If you love, then you will be God's children. You will be representing God to this world. God loves everyone. He loved those who persecuted and killed his son. That's pretty crazy. And if we are going to represent God, if we're going to say that we are his children, we cannot be like the world that repays evil with evil. No. God is full of love. And he shows his love. He is kind to those who broke his law. As Fred Kodak, a New Testament scholar, wrote, Rather than a person hating in response to hatred and loving in response to love, Christian behavior and relationships are prompted by the, by the God we worship who does not react, but acts in love and grace toward all. This is what it means to be children of God. Jesus defines define God's character as one who shows kindness to the ungrateful and the wicked. God is generous and kind, and we should be kind and draw from God's love and show how deep God's love is. And Jesus ends this section with, be merciful just as our Heavenly Father has been merciful. We're going to spend a month or so this year looking at forgiveness, but for right now, just Focus on where Jesus draws our attention to. And it is the mercy of God. We may run low on grace and love sometimes, especially if we had a bad day or didn't eat right or didn't get enough sleep. Well, you should first strive to get enough sleep and eat well. That's important. But we love over the top because we see the mercy God has for us. He has a lot of mercy. There's a lot of things that we deserve. We've done a lot of horrible things, but God has shown us mercy. This reality that even though when we were rebelling against God, he was merciful towards us, should put mercy in our bank so that we can be merciful towards others. Be merciful. Just as God, this is what one scholar said, just as God is merciful, that is, just as God is active graciously and creatively to bring redemption, so should his children be merciful. Just as God is merciful, we should show that to the world. We are his children. We represent him. We should show, show the, mercy, the mercy that God has. So we're finishing up in a few minutes. I do want to read one more passage and then we will, we will be done. I won't spend too much time on this passage uh, Luke 6, the same chapter, just finishing up the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, you could see it up on the screen. It'll be there, and it also is on your, on your notes. And the last part before we end. 
Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, a good measure pressed down, shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He also told them this parable. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eyes and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Could you imagine if Christians were known for this? Known as those who didn't judge, who didn't condemn, who were generous, who were filled with forgiveness. We hear about how Jesus wants us to live. We might... Feel holier than thou because we have discovered what the Son of God has said and we are his followers. Unfortunately, we might, fi- we might fall into the tendency of judging others. We know the truth. We know we're supposed to love and I'm going to do my best. We know there's a, a better way of living. So we might start judging others for their lack of devotion to Christ. But if you spend your time judging You have missed the point. Be merciful like God has been merciful. Judging here could also possibly mean that you predetermine who you will or will not show kindness to. The followers of Jesus must refuse to judge, to prejudge, to predetermine, or who might receive their grace. Don't judge. Don't condemn. I'm not saying that we can't speak up for what is right. No, we should do that. We should be a beacon of light. We should stand up for what is moral and fight against injustice. But I am saying that we need to be known as people who forgive, as people who give generously and love abundantly. We need to focus on doing what God has said, not focusing on what the world does as they walk away from God. Stop worrying about the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye. Instead, focus on the plank in your own eye. Deal with your problems. Learn to grow. As Jesus said, take the plank out of your eye. And then once you mature, and that's an ongoing process, but once you feel like you could see a little clear, you don't go out judging other people after that to point at their planks and say, oh, look, I finally got my plank out of my eye. Look how much better I am. Now, once we see clear, we go to our brother or our sister. And instead of judging them, we help them with their problems. This is Jesus' manifesto. This is what Jesus taught. We now have a choice. We can follow Jesus, be on the side of the poor, and suffer persecution. 
If you follow him, you follow his teachings. You strive to love your enemy, to forgive and to give generously. It's going to be hard to follow Jesus, but you will be blessed. You will show mercy. You will see the needs of others. You will have an irresistible love for the lowly, the sick, for those who are in misery, for those who are demeaned and abused. You will have a love for them, for those who have suffered injustice and are rejected, for everyone in pain and anxiety. Disciples seek out all those who have fallen into sin and guilt. No need is too great. No sin is too dreadful for mercy to reach. The merciful give their own honor to those who have fallen into shame and take the shame unto themselves. Disciples give away anyone's greatest possession, their own dignity and honor, just to show mercy. How could he keep on forgiving that person? But we see Jesus. Jesus gives us dignity and honor and mercy. Jesus is the source of life for the disciples. And while the disciples were shamed by the world, Jesus was not ashamed of that. Jesus actually takes our shame all the way to the cross. This is the mercy of Jesus. God's kingdom will be fully established through Jesus. And as a disciple of Jesus, you would have contributed to the establishment of the kingdom by the power of, the, of God's spirit. This is the king we serve. And his kingdom is full of people who strive to follow him. Not perfectly, but they strive. We at Encounter Church are partnering with you to do this or to think through this. Please talk to us if you have any questions or if you just want to talk, want somebody to listen. We are here to listen. Know that we are here for you. And if you haven't begun to follow Christ, we are here to help you as you begin. And if you are still unsure about Christ, we, we, we are here to join you wherever you find yourself and walk through this journey called life. But note that Jesus does bring a different way of life. And from the bottom of my heart, I encourage you to follow him. Let's pray. My God, in your infinite love, you have made us. In your infinite love, you have come to us. And I pray that we may get a hold of that infinite love. That with that love, we may love you, God, even more and more. And that with that love, we may also learn to love our neighbors and our enemies. In your name we pray. Amen.